Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by CEO and founder of Wolf and Shepherd, Justin Schneider. Graduate of Notre Dame, Justin realized the void in a comfortable dress shoe and implemented a technology of both casual and dress to create Wolf and Shepherd as it is today. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Justin Schneider of Wolf and Shepherd. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I want to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Sure. Those are great questions. You know, I, um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I was actually born in Milwaukee. And uh, we moved down to Atlanta when I was one uh, for my dad's job. He had just taken a big leap to um, take a job with an insurance company called Northwestern Mutual. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was getting his practice started. My mom was um, would teach piano lessons and, you know, I, so I grew up in the South in the church belt and, um, it was, uh, you know, a very, um, enjoyable upbringing, I guess you could say, and just a little mm-hmm. background on my family, you know, my, um, my mom is from Korea and, okay. um, you know, so certainly had kind of that tiger mom upbringing. Um, I'm half Korean, um, and German. And, um, you know, my dad was much more of an adventurer. He's very much a self-starter, um, just like my mom. So I think, you know, I don't know if I would have coined it as entrepreneur uh, mm-hmm. or entrepreneurship at the time, but certainly we had uh, the mindset that with hard work, you could do anything. Yeah. And I think that kind of became very apparent in, you know, my older siblings and what my parents were able to accomplish. You know, my mom went to Oxford. My brother ended up going to Harvard. Um, my sister went to USC out here in Los Angeles. and. Um, and so I had kind of these already high standards set for me as the youngest growing up. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Did you ever sell anything or try to start any businesses prior to going to school? No, I didn't. You know, I think I, as opposed to trying to sell something, maybe I was a late bloomer in this. I, I think mm-hmm. my mindset that was kind of coached into me at an early age was work your hardest. Um, anything's possible. Yeah. work your hardest and by merit alone, you can, you could accomplish great things. And so I think I was trying to absorb, um, as much experience in as many areas and to get good at as many things as I could, um, kind of both through elementary school, middle school, high school, college, I just kind of wanted to be the biggest sponge in the room. Yeah. And so I, I ended up going, um, going into, uh, Notre Dame actually as a, with, with tons of interest in it. And I think mm. that, that, um, kind of curiosity and desire to um, really, you know, understand everything that I touched um, was was a big driver in, in kind of building more of a mindset that's helped me today. Absolutely. So when was this and what did you study at Notre Dame then? Sure. So um, I went into University of Notre Dame studying architecture. Okay. Um, I had a, a one of my dad's best friends, um, was an architect and used to work on uh, his own cars on the weekends and he ran an architecture firm. And so um, hearing this guy as kind of like the coolest guy in the world, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, kind of had me subconsciously wanting to kind of achieve that kind of, you know, um, interesting, adventurous, you know, career and lifestyle. And so I thought architecture was, you know, a well-respected way um, to be both challenged in um you know, your ability to be creative and also to be professional. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I came in studying architecture, actually my sophomore year, um, just due to having running 
being a, a track athlete at Notre Dame, like you had practiced four or five hours a day. And so mm. that would that would conflict with studio time. So I had to make the choice to either continue running track and field or um, to uh, move into a new a new field. And ultimately, I chose to study industrial design by my sophomore year. That's what I ended up graduating with a degree in. Okay. So you mentioned that you ran track there. Was that on scholarship or were it you was. I, I had a I was initially recruited as a middle distance runner um, okay. in the 800 and the 1600. Um, and it seemed that I would be kind of a better fit for the team as a multi-eventer. So I ended up doing the, the decathlon and heptathlon at Notre Dame. And held the school record. I think I still do in oh, the wow. half one. Um, and so that was kind of a, a great way for me to kind of get a merging of, you know, it's like I love, I just was so passionate about a lot of things that, you know, also running track and field and having an interest in product design and design. Um, I wanted to kind of merge those both together as much as possible when I, when I left Notre Dame. Absolutely. So what was your overall experience of Notre Dame as a university as a whole? You know, that's, that's a great question. I think my experience at Notre Dame was really based on gut. Like I mm-hmm. coming, when I was like touring different universities, I was looking at University of Virginia, Notre Dame, University of Georgia. I looked at Princeton. I looked at a few um, other schools where I probably didn't have the, you know, the test scores to get in, but because I could run in circles, it seemed like it was a, <laughs> a, a viable option for me. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, I think what ultimately made Notre Dame so special to me was the feeling of invitation when you when you hop on campus. I remember on my mm-hmm. visit, not necessarily being able to pinpoint why I seemed to love the school and it seemed to connect with me, but in hindsight, I realized that a lot of that came from even just strangers uh, coming up to me and saying, "Oh, you're here visiting. We hope you come to Notre Dame. Like this is an mm-hmm. amazing school." It really did feel like family, yeah. Um, and it felt like people took a, a genuine interest in who you were as an individual, not how you can be a contributor to the university. Um, yeah. That was that was, I think, a distinct difference that Notre Dame, um, you know, bred both as a prospective student and um, as someone who graduated. Now I hold that hold that really dear and and kind of looking to find ways to invite other people to be a part of the family as opposed to um, what can you do to, to earn it. Absolutely. So talking with Justin, to the listeners out there, before this interview, I mentioned to him that I actually live about 10 minutes from the University of Notre Dame. And I, yeah, Justin, I know exactly what you're saying around this. And to me, there's so much tradition around just the, the base around Notre Dame, say with football, academics, just everything. It really feels like a family, like you're, like you're saying. It does. Um, yeah. and, and I think that was, that was something that ultimately I really valued. And, and it's why I think Notre Dame was such a fantastic experience for me. For sure. All right. So prior to Wolf and Shepard, what kind of jobs were you working out of college then? So, you know, I didn't work any jobs while at Notre Dame. I guess I could say running track and field was my job. It, mm-hmm. it paid for school. Um, pre- yeah. Notre Dame, honestly, I was just so involved with sports, extracurriculars. I was always doing something, never staying still. So um, the times I did have a job, I believe, I remember my, uh, between my freshman and sophomore year of high school, um, I worked uh, as a landscaper. Um, I was making $4.95 an hour. um, And, you know, I would work, I would go to football practices, summer practice in the mornings from I think it was 6.30 till about 10.30, and then I would work from uh, about 11.30 noonish till about 5 or 6 p.m., and then I would drive an hour home. Wow. Um, but the job was one of those where, um, you know, I think it was very good for me to 
to work essentially a minimum, I think that's far below minimum wage now, mm. uh, but essentially a minimum wage job and, and just complete the job. I think the point was work hard. And like, I had a, a rule kind of handed down to me from my, my father, which was like, once you start something, you finish it. Mm. And, you know, even though the job didn't pay well and it was, you know, long hours in the sun in, you know, in Georgia, um, you know, I think it was a good, uh, it was a great way to um, actually build a foundation of respect for kind of, um, you know, manual labor and what it looks like to, to work a job. For sure. So, and then going into Wolf and Shepherd, what got you interested in shoe design specifically? I saw that you actually have a resume behind you of shoe design before Wolf and Shepherd. So if you don't mind, explain a little bit more of that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't think I ever set out to design shoes mm-hmm. as much as it kind of aligned with where I had interest and where I was excited to try to find ways to contribute. And I think, you know, being at Notre Dame, we were um, sponsored by Adidas before the Under Armour deal. And mm-hmm. I loved their product. I remember I always wore their Supernova Glide um, for training. And I, I would, I think I burned through a pair every six to eight months or six to eight weeks. And <laughs> You know, I'd go for three through three to five pair a year. And um, so I thought, you know, like I love, I love sports more for the competition, more for the ability to kind of achieve big things and to make progress. And mm-hmm. um, I also love design and I figured the perfect way to blend what ex- existing experience I had would be to design athletic products. Mm. And the one that seemed to be the biggest challenge would be designing running shoes or athletic shoes. So I figured, you know, I'm performing in them today, but what if I can design the products that others perform into, into, in tomorrow. And, Mm. um, that kind of narrowed it down to like one singular job that I wanted. And I wanted to get a job at Adidas designing running shoes. And so, um, you know, uh, I, I think it, it became apparent, like if I just, I made a goal in college that I'm going to be very singular focused and it's better to be very, very specific, hyper-specific mm-hmm. about what I want to do and go pursue, pursue it to find out that I don't want to do it and I can move on to the next thing. Sure. And also because the more what I found is that the more clear and um, precise I am about what I hope to accomplish, mm-hmm. when I share that with others, people have more, they have more linear ways that they can help you get there. Mm. Whereas if you say, I'm just passionate about doing things, nobody really knows how to respond to that. But when you can say like, I want to, I want to design running shoes at Adidas. Mm-hmm. That's very clear. Like, well, I know someone at Adidas. You should talk to them. Or, oh, you, I know a footwear designer. You should talk to them. Uh, yeah. That's in Portland. You know, I, I have friends in Portland. Let me know if you end up getting out there. I, there's a place you can stay. And all of those things come together to help support that vision of where you want to go. For and sure. for me, I found that, like, I don't necessarily care whether I'm designing a shoe or if I were designing a thimble. Um, it's more about you know, being excited about where I'm going and, and sticking to that vision um, mm-hmm. until something diverts me away from it. Absolutely. And then moving into Wolf and Shepherd from there, when did the idea arise and what was the inspiration behind it to specifically target dress shoes? Yeah. So, you know, after Notre Dame, I ended up working, I did an internship with Adidas. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up um, between my junior and senior year, um, their um, VP of design for North America ended up allowing me to be do a sponsored project with them through my senior year. So I did my thesis on a modular uh, multi-event track spike okay. and um, presented that. I ended up not getting a job at Adidas, but I did get one at New Balance in their innovation department 
worked at New Balance, then hopped over to Reebok and had gotten some good experience in how to design products, how to build a commercial product to spec to fit price points. Um, and an interesting thing there that kind of, I think, inspired Wolf and Shepard inadvertently was what our design director would say when I was at Reebok, um, which was, you know, what is the purpose of what we do? And mm-hmm. our purpose is to design products that inspire athletes to win. It's like, yes, you're looking to make it lighter, more comfortable. You're making, you're looking to make products, you know, perform well, but ultimately we want to inspire the person wearing them to be a winner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought, I remember a friend of mine um, about five years ago who was living in New York, had a banking job and would, he had, he just spent his bonus check. I think he had just bought a really expensive English made shoe with his bonus check. Mm. And I remember him calling me on his way to work one morning and saying, you know, Justin, I just spent $595 on this, you know, these amazingly beautiful shoes, but I can't even get to work without my feet killing me. Uh Why can't I have a shoe that looks good and feels good too? Um, And that combined with this idea of like, we want to inspire people to win in their field of performance. I figured, you know, I've designed shoes for athletes, but what about the other 99.9% of us whose field of performance is the workforce? What are we doing to equip them to perform? Um, and that kind of that that triggered the desire to come up with a product that would inspire the working professional to succeed in their field of performance, whether that's you know entertainment, music, real estate, sales, um, you know investment banking, management consulting, whatever the job was, I wanted to equip them to succeed. For sure. And then what did some of the first prototypes look like then? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I remember him asking me this question, and I ended up immediately kind of going to uh, my my dad's closet. I was actually living at home. I had just come back from working with National Geographic abroad on a uh, field guide, and so I was overseas for a little over nine months. I came back. I was looking to either work as a footwear designer again, um, or you know, potentially start something. And um, it was at that time that uh, you know I had that call with with my friend who kind of triggered this challenge. Um, and so I had, I had uh, at my disposal, you know, my dad's old dress shoes, his old running shoes. And I just started with a Dremel and, you know, with a wrench start ripping apart shoes and, and figuring out like, how can I combine the best elements of an athletic shoe with the craftsmanship and heritage of a classic dress shoe? Yeah. So where you have other brands that expose comfort, expose performance, I wanted to conceal comfort and performance in a classic silhouette. Mm. So the, the original shoes didn't, I mean, they certainly looked like shoes from a silhouette, but they were hardly wearable. It was more something to stand in and to get kind of, to start getting, uh, you know, creative ideas, um, you know, boiling over. And um, once I kind of found, you know, what elements of a, of, of, of a running shoe I wanted to keep in, what elements of a dress shoe, um, then I started looking for um, factories to start building prototypes okay. for, based off of drawings I did. Um, and so they certainly just looked like actually classic dress shoes. Um, mm-hmm. You'd really have to take a cross section or take a bandsaw and cut a shoe in half to really see that it had any elements of running shoe in it. Um, so yeah, the first shoes looked like dress shoes um, and probably not very great looking dress shoes <laughs> by any means. Very interesting. So once you had the shoe developed, how did you begin to sell? Was it strictly through e-commerce? Did you have any retail spots, gift shops, anywhere? Or was it online? Yeah, no, this is a great question. So I, I, I had about $15,000 saved up and I used that basically to find factories, visit them, 
build prototypes. And then I was down to my last thousand um, dollars that I was both living off of and using to start this company. Okay. And so I kind of out of obligation had to take the latest prototype I had, you know, um, photograph it. And I, I built actually um, an e-commerce site using a new credit card. And once that credit, <laughs> once the 30 day trial ran out, I, you know, got a new credit card. And then I got another credit card. An Amex card was the third one. And those three cards we still use in the business today. And instead of them having like a eight or $10,000 limit, now they have half a million dollar limits. But, wow. um, you know, I think the, um, the funny thing was that I didn't have any money to buy the products that I wanted to, um, to make. So I had to build an e-commerce site, um, put them on for pre-order. And essentially, instead of, I kind of bypassed your Indiegogo um, campaign and, or Kickstarter campaign and, and essentially started taking pre-orders. Um, okay. But what I needed to do was I needed to sell $60,000 worth of shoes just to pay the deposit. And I was going to need to come up with another 60,000 to pay the remainder just to get the shoes to ship from the factory. Wow. Um, and so um, my goal was to sell approximately 50 shoe, pairs of shoes a week of a $345 shoe that nobody had ever heard of before. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was doing this, I was just turned 25 years old. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that I remember, you know, family friends asking me, so what, um, you know, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm starting a shoe company. I said, no, that's, that's so sweet. Bless your heart. And it's kind of <laughs> like, that. You're, you're an idiot, man. Why would you try that? Like, go get a real job. Um, and, you know, certainly nobody thought anything of it. And that's how it was for the first probably two years of this is the only really the only believer that Wolf and Shepherd would become something was myself and mm-hmm. uh, my soon to be wife. Um, outside of that, I mean, I think this was all uh, essentially a, you know, a side project. Um, but from my perspective, it was my life. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, the big transition for me though was, you know, I remember th- that Thursday of uh, the first week I had sold 12 pairs. And my dad asked me, how are you doing? I said, well, I sold 12. He's like, how many do you need to sell by tomorrow? I said, 50. He's like, well, get off your ass and sell some shoes. And he's like, has your brother bought a pair? And I said, not yet. He said he would. He's like, well, if you can't get your brother to um, buy your shoes, then, you know, you might as well throw in the towel. So I, I called my brother. He said, yeah, I'll buy your shoes. And I said, no, Johan, this is my life. This means so much to me. It's, I put everything I have into it. It means so much if you would buy a pair of my shoes. And, and he went online said, what color do I pick, the black one or the brown one? I said, do you need to buy both? And he's like, that's mm. over $600. Uh, I said, please, just this one time, would you do this? And then afterwards, I followed up and said, it would mean so much to me if you would email your friends at work and tell them how much it would mean to you wow. if they would buy yeah. your brother's shoe. He's like, I'm never going to do that. I don't want to be that guy. And he said, I've never asked anything in my life. Would you please just do this one thing? And he did. And what ended up happening is I had about 12 orders come in from the company he worked from the following morning. And I realized that the big inception point between saying you're trying to sell something and just posting on Instagram or, you know, Facebook that you've started a company is that you really have to put everything you have behind it and have that compelling belief that this is your life. And it's a privilege for the person buying your product for sure to be a part of this early journey and was able to actually sell $157,000 worth of product in the first six weeks by by just by changing that mentality. At this time, was was it a uniform shoe or did you have a variety? I, I, you said the brown and the black, but was that one model or did you have multiple models at this time? I actually had two models. We had a cap toe, okay. a traditional cap toe and a traditional uh, penny loafer. It was called the closer and the ringer. So nomenclature kind of following, 
you know, either sports or business related um, terminology that is someone who hustles or wins or makes something happen. Hmm. And you'll see that nomenclature in our product today. Gotcha. Did you have any employees? You said your wife was supportive, but it sounds like it was strictly you at this time. Did you have anyone help you out, say your brother or anyone else? Um, I think a lot of people helped me out. I mean, I, I, it's interesting. I, I tried to find a co-founder. Um, mm -hmm. I, most people didn't see how the company could make any money um, or how it was something that was scalable. Mm. Um, and so at the time it was, it was just me, but I'd say, you know, if there was any kind of co-founder or person that was there from the beginning, it would have been my, you know, my girlfriend, fiance, and then now wife, um, mm. who helped me with, you know, would encourage me early on, helped me create brand content initially, helped me with our website. And so, um, certainly she's been there since the beginning, but, um, I mean, it was very lonely and I think, you know, yeah. there was, uh, there were no employees. In fact, we actually grew to 2.2 million in sales before we hired our first full-time employee. Okay. Um, wow. So, you know, we, we, uh, generated quite a bit of revenue before we started building a team. Gotcha. And then moving on to 2015, I saw that you guys actually obtained a world record in one of your shoes. I, I know this is hopping forward, but sure. if you don't mind talking about this experience, that's such a tremendous experience for your shoes and what model was this that that runner wore and what was that experience like yeah that's a great question we had two interns this summer okay. um one from notre dame actually another one from syracuse and she happened to be classmates with a student who had just um graduated and was looking to run races hmm. an idea came up uh just in the morning one day in our in our living room where we we're saying hey how do we Essentially, we just moved our production to Europe from from Guanajuato, Mexico to um, Portugal and um, We wanted a way to relaunch the brand in a way and we thought what's the best way to tell people that this product is comfortable than to run a marathon in these shoes so we quickly looked online found out that the this, the, the next marathon that was in driving distance was in Atlanta, Georgia and we were living in Jacksonville Beach, Florida at the time so uh, my wife and I are two interns um, we drove up to Atlanta and we said, well, we obviously need a runner and we, our uh, intern knew this guy, Yuris Selenix, who was willing to run the race. And so we paid his entry fee. Um, we quickly got some, uh, singlets screen printed, um, and decided to look at, uh, gunning for the fastest half marathon ran in a pair of dress shoes and get the Guinness world record around it. Wow. Um, so we emailed over 200, um, publications, only one affiliate writer got back to us. Medicine Atlanta happened to be there covering another story and ended up covering the race. When Uris actually won the whole race running a 550 mile pace, um, we had all this video content around it. Within 24 hours, we turned around that video content, threw out a press release, and we had over 43 uh, major publications cover that story in the first week. Wow. Um, and that was a huge amplifier. It helped us kind of go from you know, a great week being selling five shoes in one week to selling five shoes a day. And we started growing at about a 10 to 15% clip uh, month over month after that. Wow, that's amazing. What kind of feelings did the runner express after the race with the dress shoes? Yeah, I think he was, uh, Yuris was very nervous. I think he, he I think seeing how um, passionate we were with this upstart company, I think he felt compelled that he had to finish the race and that he had to do a good job. Mm -hmm. um, I had no expectation that he would win the whole race with 8,500 runners, but when he came <laughs> to the finish line, I ran the last half mile with him holding a gimbal to record his victory. And when he finished the race, he kind of, he, you know, hobbled over the, over the corner again, he just won by 
the next best runner who wasn't wearing dress shoes was five minutes behind him. <laughs> and, um, you know, you, you look down and he said, I'm surprised. I, you know, it's like, I'm just surprised how the, how the shoes felt. Like, I think he was surprised that he made it 13.1 miles. I think he was wow. expecting like three to five miles in to start feeling some cramps or, you know, s- some heavy chafing or something. <laughs> um, and so I think he was surprised that the shoes held up. Uh, yeah. When you look down at them, the, the shoes actually were, we were using, it's a very soft leather that we had. It's about a 60, 60, 40 blend of veg and veg tanning and chrome oil. So it was a very soft leather, um, mm-hmm. very thin. And so it felt more like a single layer mesh that you would have in a running shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had, we had this compressed cushioning, this micro micro porous membrane that was the footbed. Um, and so it really kind of packed a lot of cushioning into a, a very thin profiled shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, the leather by no means was very breathable. So it was completely covered in sweat and you had to start to get some salt percolate, percolating on the leather. Um, but the fact that the shoes held up and that he finished the race without any injury, um, I think was a, a strong testament to how many other sure. people could wear formal dress shoes or welted shoes and even run a mile to work. Amazing. My original story. So for sure. So looking at Wolf and Shepard today, what would you say separates Wolf and Shepard from your competitors? You know, I think today, um, by far, I could say that we have the best dress shoe in the marketplace. It's the most comfortable shoe with uncompromising quality, made by the best craftsmen with the best materials. And and we take a hit on margin just so that customers can have something that is premium to what else is out there. Mm -hmm. Um, Aside from that, that's not what differentiates us from other brands. I think it's our approach. It's our storytelling. Mm -hmm. The fact is that you have heritage brands out there that are nearly 100 years old in, in the US market. And they have tried to adapt to the modern professional and saying, we are we have flex welt shoes, we have technology in our dress shoes. Um, and the story is just inauthentic because you can't take brands, traditionally the brown shoe industry has been built around heritage and nostalgia. Mm-hmm. It's made in Italy with Italian leathers, made with by fine craftsmen for decades um, yeah. by a family run business. That is not the same narrative as Here's a guy who came from Adidas, who was, you know, a runner at University of Notre Dame, designed running shoes for top athletes. And here he is taking the best of that technology and forward thinking and applying that to, a, you know, ultimately uh, an industry that has been relatively unchanged for nearly 100 years. I mean, sure. people are still walking in dress shoes with cork cushioning and, you know, a hand stitched welt. I mean, as much as that's been marketed to us as something of quality, sure, it has craftsmanship but it's not necessarily cheap, more expensive to make. It's not, there's no way that cork is the best cushioning surface in the 21st century. And so sure. I think there's ways that we can honor heritage, classic style. We can honor tradition while um, elevating the working professional today by providing them with relevant styles and relevant technology and materials that are available today. And I think that approach to designing products, that approach to storytelling, AKA the half marathon or running with the bulls in Pamplona, you know, redefining what you can do in your dress shoes or in your work shoes mm-hmm. um, has elevated us into a new perspective where this young, hungry, ambitious professional says, I want to be my own person. I want to win in my field. And Wolf and Shepherd supports that. For sure. So where can Wolf and Shepherd be purchased nowadays? It was e-commerce originally. And I saw that you guys have other locations now. So if you don't mind sharing where those are. Sure. I mean, we, we actually started uh, selling our product online. As you know, um, we immediately started looking at wholesalers. I remember going to Project New York 
um, going to Chicago Collective and setting up mm -hmm. a booth um, to, to try and bring in um, retail accounts. And it's slow moving without being established. Those a lot of the, the traditional retailers that you would buy from um, do not take bets on uh, upstart brands. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, today we do sell uh, predominantly, you know, we sell through our website, but we also have found a lot of success selling with independent retailers and um, we have our own retail stores as well. So we do have a flagship store on Madison Avenue in New York City and we have another one on Santa Monica Boulevard in Beverly Hills here okay. in Los Angeles. Um, so you can order in store even during the pandemic. Our stores are open right now um, with, with limited hours, but we have our full, full offering there. Um, we have uh, nearly a hundred independent retailers across the country carrying our products. And then of course you can buy at wolfandshepherd.com. Awesome. So what would you say is your top seller currently? Well, that's a, that's a funny question. It's always the one that the, always the most recent product we launch. And in this okay. case, that's the, that's the crossover SwiftNet. Mm -hmm. It's a new, um, new patented product that we have that takes a, um, a kind of a polyester and recycled woven, um, uh, 3D upper, 3D engineered upper, and then it um, wraps that around a soft, buttery memory foam membrane, and then is lasted onto a EVA running shoe sole. So it's called our crossover SwiftNet, um, and uh, we sold over 245 pair in the first 48 hours. Wow! Um, on the launch of that product, and so currently that is our best seller. Um, and this whole hybrid category that we're now in. Um, is is currently where we're, we're seeing a lot of growth. And I think a lot of that has to do with it's kind of overt aesthetic around comfort and the, the fact that it delivers on that story. Awesome. So I like to end each episode with this point. So if you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring, aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret, what would that be? Uh, one piece of advice I would share with aspiring entrepreneurs is to just get started. I think mm -hmm. if, and you don't even have to have the greatest idea because the fact is that a lot of people have great ideas. I'm going to sound like I'm preaching to the choir when I say that um, <laughs> everyone does have ideas, yeah. but few people are willing to take the steps to get started. And it doesn't matter how old you are. I remember asking, um, asking a professional um, when I was in college, like when is the right time to start a business or how should you go about starting it? And he said, as soon as you can, mm. um, and I think the point was most people wait to accrue certain levels of, um, you know, professional experience, which is by no means a difficult, my, no, by no means the wrong way. Certainly the more experience you have, you generate more connections, you know, you accumulate more savings to start something. You have, um, you have more experience under your belt, developing skill sets that are going to help you professionally. Mm -hmm. um, and all of the, all of those things are positives, but those far, uh, are far outweighed by the negative of comfort. And as much as people think they're going to start something later in life, life happens, right? You have a family, sure. you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, or you, you get married, you have, you know, financial responsibilities to your family. Um, and so once you start making a great income, it's very difficult to, um, you've already upgraded your lifestyle to keep up with everyone else. And it's very difficult to move backwards. Um, whereas for me, I kind of saw it as there's no, there's nothing I'm going to lose by starting now, except for gaining an accelerated, uh, you know, accelerate my experience. And so, you know, my advice is in the first, say 10 years out of school or first 10 years out of high school, even just be the biggest sponge in the room, absorb as much as you can, 
-hmm. And don't be afraid to take leaps to try things. But once you try it, pursue it until it dies. And so I think that you have to start. And that's the kind of the key denominator for success is you have to start. And once you start, you have to keep trying until you run your idea to the ground. Um, it either dies or it survives. And even now, I mean, we've, you know, we're, we're a business that's, you know, <laughs> we're doing, you know, we've been doing tens of millions in revenue per year for the last couple of years. And mm. we, we still are kind of like, if we don't continue to grow, you die. For sure. And you can, you can hear that echoed from everyone from Phil Knight to um, who was, you know, the founder and, you know, executive chairman of Nike to, um, you know, even Bob Iger, who is the CEO and a board member of the Walt Disney Company. Um, they will all say this in their memoirs, you either grow or you die. And what thing, what they did that other people have not done is they just went and started. For sure. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Wolf and Shepherd at wolfandshepherd.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.